Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. This edition is about the new consensus guideline on therapeutic monitoring of vancomycin for serious methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus infections, which has been approved by ASHB, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society, and the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. This guideline updates the previous version published in 2009. The new document, which has been online since March 2020, has become the most frequently downloaded article from the AJHP website. Joining me as an interviewer is ASHP staff member, Anna Legrid-Dopp, who worked with the authors and the collaborating organizations to advance the document through public comment and organizational peer review and to its final publication in AJHP. We are speaking with two of the 13 authors of the Consensus Guideline, Dr. Michael Ryback of Wayne State University and Dr. Jennifer Lay of UC San Diego. Mike and Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time uh, for having this conversation with Anna and me. Uh, For the benefit of listeners, let me say that it's beyond the scope of this interview to delve into the details of the Consensus Guideline. Our intent is to give you a sense of the importance of the recommendations and to discuss considerations relating to their implementation by hospitals and health systems. Anna, let me turn to you for the first question. Thank you, Bill. Mike, this first question is for you. As the leader of the team who wrote the comprehensive consensus document, can you give us a sense of the key challenges you faced in bringing it to closure and final publication? Sure, and um, as you are aware, the vancomycin consensus guidelines took more than four years to complete. I think one of the biggest challenges for us was to make sure that we didn't miss anything of importance in our comprehensive search and review of the literature. We also wanted to have a, the most robust studies possible in forming our conclusions. That was a big hurdle uh, for us since in some cases we had to wait for some of the more recent safety and prospective studies to be completed. The other challenges was working with a very large committee and four different organizations or societies to bring the whole thing to conclusion. Mike, could you please comment on the importance of this guideline from the broad perspective of patient safety? Sure. Bancomycin, as you know, is one of the most commonly used antibiotics worldwide. Uh, One of the most concerning problems with vancomycin is nephrotoxicity. Uh, Nephrotoxicity is probably what drove the guidelines, the revisions of the guidelines, as we learned new information over the course of 10 years, for example, since the last guidelines, that the safety was a major factor in how we were dosing the drug previously on, on the basis of trough concentrations. So that And as you know, nephrotoxicity certainly complicates the patient's treatment, their length of stay in the hospital um, and healthcare costs. So 
The biggest issue for us was really um, looking at safety issues with vancomycin and making sure that we can not only optimize the drug, but keep people from uh, getting into kidney toxicity. Right. Jennifer, what would you add? Then I echo what Mike just said. This guideline is critical and very timely to ensure this safe. And I definitely want to emphasize safe use of vancomycin in pediatrics and including neonates. Now, what we've observed over the past decade um, was increase in acute kidney injury as a result of increasing doses, sometimes as high up as 100 milligrams per kilo per day, which is almost triple the traditional doses to achieve therapeutic troughs. Now, as we are moving towards um, recommending AUC, which is area on the curve over 24 hours, dosing and monitoring that is safer in, in children as it allows for us to achieve therapeutic exposure at a lower total daily dose. We heard earlier that there was a need to have more research added to the body of knowledge to be considered for these recommendations. Can you give us some examples of the research findings and insights that emerged after the publication of the 2009 recommendations that were influential in developing the new guideline? Thanks, Anna. Now, for neonates and pediatrics, um, the major challenge for us to align our recommendation, particularly for the best pharmacodynamic target to ensure drug safety and efficacy, that lining with the adults, since we have very limited outcomes data. And since the guideline was endorsed by ASHP and for the first time, Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, we wanted to make sure to reflect the best evidence available. In neonates and pediatrics, the important findings that have surfaced since the 2009 guideline are the pharmacokinetic data performed by different investigators that draw similar conclusions. Um, the most robust pharmacokinetic studies were based on population-based modeling and Monte Carlo simulations that permit the use of sparse sampling, which is more practical and, I would say, ethical in minimizing the number of blood draws, especially in pediatrics, um, and allowing us to derive the best dose. Thank you. Mike, can you share your thoughts? I mean, the big difference from the 2009 recommendations that really influenced the guidelines, as I mentioned earlier, was the repeated literature that um, indicated that there was a strong correlation between trough monitoring and increased nephrotoxicity. And it became very clear to us with a number of large studies, including prospective studies, um, that the AUC to MIC ratio, instead of using troughs, would reduce nephrotoxicity in our patients. Some of these studies exceeded 1,200 and 1,300 patients, so they were large and robust studies. They were done with some of the models that Jennifer was mentioning, for example, using Bayesian forecasting, so they're more precise and more accurate than, we, than what we've ever seen before. And we've learned from the literature that our previous knowledge um, driving troughs or driving AUC to MIC ratios was inaccurate, but since in the last 10 years, we've really come forward with new ways to approach the monitoring and, and dosing and more safely of this drug in our patient population. And I think that's what really drove uh, us to make the new recommendations to move away from troughs and into AUC-MIC ratio monitoring only. 
optimize their therapy and, and to improve their safety. Jennifer, uh, coming back to you, uh, it's noteworthy that each recommendation in the document is rated in terms of strength and quality of evidence. Uh, beyond what you've already said, is there anything further you can say about the quality of the published research on vancomycin dosing? And I'll start this out by responding for the literature in neonates and pediatrics. The quality of the, specifically the dosing information, um, were largely graded A2, signifying good evidence with one or more well-designed studies. Now, personally, for me, I believe this is excellent in that we are unlikely to achieve what we call an A1, um, which requires randomized control studies, which is unlikely to happen because vancomycin is an old drug and we're not going to get funded largely for that to conduct a randomized control trial. Now, for the pharmacodynamic studies, we got some great progress with that. And in fact, my uh, research group received, was fortunate to receive NIH funding for a program, and this resulted in important dosing recommendation, recognizing the higher end of um, the pharmacodynamic exposure that um, puts the patient at higher risk for acute kidney injury. And this is much more robust estimation of exposure using AUC by Bayesian method, as Mike alluded to earlier. Mike, would you have anything to add on this? Yeah, I, I definitely think that the quality of the published papers on vancomycin dosing has improved quite a bit since we last visited this drug near, you know, more than 10 years ago now. And that led to some of the recommendations that Jennifer was talking about. Previously, we just didn't have prospective studies. Uh, I know we don't, we didn't even this time around didn't have randomized control trials, but we did have prospective studies, and some of which Jennifer was mentioning. There was a few others called the Provide study that was funded by NIH, that gave us a very good pharmacokinetic sampling, robust sampling that led us to the same conclusions that we were seeing in the last 10 years, uh, that the AUC to MIC ratio was the best way to monitor our patients to optimize therapy and to limit some of the nephrotoxicity that we're seeing. So I, I do believe that uh, we've come a long way and the research uh, improved quite a bit over the last time that we um, had guidelines on vancomycin. Uh, and I, so we are very happy with the, with the, the guidelines as they are and the quality how they were ranked, the published papers. Sure. Well, well, Mike, just sort of extending uh, your comments and Jennifer's comments here, um, what would you say are the most important unsettled issues that merit research related to the use of vancomycin in treating serious MRSA infections? Well, that's a great question because we have a lot of data, as I mentioned, and both Jennifer and I and the committee members were very pleased with the information that we have. But one thing that the audience should know is that everything we know about vancomycin and optimizing the dosing has come from one specific infection type, and that has been bloodstream infections. So, And, and there's a good reason for that. Um, bloodstream infections are associated with more complications for patients, including mortality. And one can follow the time it takes to clear the bloodstream as a marker of whether vancomycin dosing regimen was correct or not. So it's 
It's a robust patient population that has markers to, for us to understand what the best dosing procedure is for efficacy and safety. That being said, we really don't have good information in other infections, but we lack robust information in pneumonia, in meningitis, bone and joint infections, and even skin infections where vancomycin is most often used across, across the globe. So I think one of the problems that we have and moving forward, what we need to resolve is the lack of data that we have in these other infections. So what we're faced with here is the committee making recommendations on data primarily derived from bloodstream infections and then extrapolating that data into other um, infections, bone and joint, pneumonia, and so on. Again, that's the part that's a little uneasy with us. Uh, so we definitely need in the next five years, next 10 years, for example, data and, and some of these select infections for us to understand if the recommendations that we're making right now with the AUC to MIC ratios of 400 to 600, are they correct for, for, for these different infection types or do we have to adjust for each infection, which is likely uh, the way we need to go? Jennifer, uh, you have something to add with respect to unsettled issues that merit research? Definitely for the pediatric world. Well, one major, major vulnerable area in children is that um, we must advocate prospective comparative outcome studies in children, including bacteremia studies. We currently have several retrospective non-comparative studies with limited sample size, which positions us at risk for type 2 beta error, and hence we must rely largely on adult data currently for efficacy target. And, you know, on behalf of the children, we definitely thank for all the research that Mike has done, at least in the bacteremia studies, to shed some light of what the targets are, because we're relying largely on adult data at this point. Thanks to both of you for outlining some of those unanswered questions and making a call for more research. Mike, shifting back to this guideline and building on what you've already shared, can you highlight some of the other major differences in the in the revisions? Sure, Ann. The major difference, again, to stress is that we are moving away from trough monitoring. In fact, that is mentioned in the guidelines that it's no longer recommended to use troughs of, of any sort for monitoring patients on vancomycin only because of the risk of nephrotoxicity is too great. So the major departure is that AUC to MIC monitoring is what's being recommended and not trough concentrations. These guidelines focus on safety and, and include special populations like obesity, for example, for the first time and pediatrics, as Jennifer has already mentioned, in terms of monitoring, we're asking people to go back to where we were back 10, 20 years ago when we were driving two levels post-administration of vancomycin to obtain more accurate information on an AUC, derive an AUC for that patient, uh, as opposed to trough monitoring, which we've done probably for 15 or 20 years now. So it's a departure from what we've done in the past and moving over the AUC monitoring, and again, predominantly based on safety concerns. Now, for the pediatric world, many of us believe that the 2009 guideline was adult-centric, 
And this is rightly so because we just didn't have any pediatric studies for a very old drug. However, luckily since then, we have witnessed an increasing number of well-designed pharmacokinetic studies across the wide age spectrum from neonates up to adolescents. So this is, and it came from independent um, investigators as well. In addition, we encountered pharmacodynamic data, but again, largely focused on the nephrotoxicity side and not the efficacy side in pediatrics. And some of these studies were included in meta-analyses that we cited in the guideline. And of course, when we have meta-analysis of different studies, this is definitely a sign that we have good supporting data. Jennifer, carrying on that theme of the pediatrics, you contributed significantly to the new section of the revision that does pertain to the use and monitoring of vancomycin in pediatric patients. What additional insights can you share? Well, I'm very glad you asked this question, Anna. Before I start on that, I want to first thank you, Mike, for including pediatrics in this guideline. Vancomycin is an old drug and available not only in the United States, but it is also used in many, if not all, other countries like Vietnam, Taiwan, and Jordan that I have the pleasure of teaching at. Um, so this will have a worldwide impact for sure, and we definitely need um, some directions and guidance for pediatrics. Now, the basis for the addition of the pediatrics section is that we actually have peer-reviewed published studies in the past decade that warrant integration into the guideline. Now, you know, sitting on this committee, I realized it has to be robust uh, studies in order for us to even mention it in the guideline, and that's certainly something we appreciate, especially going on to evidence-based medicine and pediatrics. The great news from all of this is that the pediatric investigations were independently conducted and derived to similar conclusions as adults as it relate to acute kidney injury, noting that acute kidney injury was exposure and dose dependent, meaning that the higher exposure by AUC and dose, the higher risk of this toxicity. Well, as we bring this conversation to a close, we would like each of you to comment on one facet, one facet of the consensus guideline that you believe might pose substantial challenges for hospitals and health systems to implement, and also uh, share your ideas about how to address those challenges. Jennifer, I'd like to start with you. Sure. One of the major concerns is transitioning from trough to Bayesian AUC, dosing and monitoring. The AUC concept itself is very new for therapeutic drug monitoring as we have traditionally been using trough concentrations, and not just only for vancomycin, but for a lot of other drugs too that we do monitor in the hospital. In addition, we are recommending the preference for two-level monitoring peak and trough, in which before we've only emphasized more in the trough. The benefit, however, of transitioning to Bayesian AUC is that we can measure levels even before steady state, which is important, especially, I think, for critically ill um, patients where we want to make sure the exposure is adequate early in therapy. Another, and I think the biggest challenge for implementation of the new guideline, 
is the availability, or should I say, the affordability of a Bayesian software program to support estimation exposure. Um, using Bayesian estimation requires us to have a sophisticated tool, um, and this may not be possible at all hospitals, especially community hospitals, and definitely in third world countries. So the way around that is to have you know, support for free access to Bayesian tools. And I think this is something that we all need to work towards. Mike, your comments on this point? Yeah, I just want to follow up on a couple of things that Jennifer said. Jennifer's mentioning um, the preferred methodology of the 2020 guidelines for dosing vancomycin, and that is using a Bayesian forecasting uh, software approach, which is more sophisticated and more accurate in uh, all of our opinions. But there is an alternative method, which most hospitals will probably adopt, at least initially, until they can seek out the software or it becomes more affordable, and that is using two post-serum concentrations after the administration of vancomycin to use one compartment pharmacokinetics and uh, use a trapezoidal approach to derive the AUC. That's what the Detroit Medical Center, for example, we're um, affiliated with is currently doing. We are examining, though, uh, moving to a Bayesian approach. But for now, I think most hospitals will probably come up with a calculator type of approach using two post-serum concentrations. And it is the second recommendation of the guidelines is that this is an acceptable approach if you don't have the ability to use the Bayesian modeling approach. I think one of the other challenges, Bill, is for most hospitals, it's going to be the educational piece of this. I mean, this is a big change for everyone involved, not only pharmacists, who now are going to have to draw two levels and use some more sophisticated calculations that they probably haven't done in a long time. Um, but we're going to have to educate everybody involved in the chain of events. For example, the physicians now have to be working with pharmacists ordering two versus one level. We don't necessarily have to wait all the way to study state. In fact, the guidelines are recommending more aggressive monitoring up front within the first 24 to 48 hours. Uh, we'll have to address concerns of nursing, people in the ICU, uh, the phlebotomy, the laboratory personnel, toxicology to expect that there'll be, that there'll be an increase in vancomycin levels being um, ordered, for example. So there's a long chain of events. And I think the challenges for most hospitals is that they're going to have to lay out this program for their the entire hospital and do it in a stepwise approach. Uh, the Detroit Medical Center switched over in 2015 to AUC-MIC monitoring, and it took literally six months to a year to educate our entire group across eight hospitals to be able to make that change. I think that's going to be quite a bit of a challenge for most uh, organizations, and I would see them rolling this out over time and not necessarily overnight, for example. So these are recommendations, and hopefully people will be able to move to them as soon as possible to ensure the safety of their patients. Well, Mike and Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time to have this discussion with Anna and me. For AJHB Voices, this is William Zelmer. Anna Legredop and I have been speaking with Dr. Michael Rybeck and Dr. Jennifer Lay about the new consensus guideline on therapeutic monitoring of vancomycin for serious MRSA infections. Thank you for listening. 
That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.